Hey everyone, Sydney here at the German Marshall Fund. I'm here with Alistair Somerville, who's going to tell you about a new podcast from Georgetown University that we think you'll love. It's called The Europe Desk. Thanks, Sydney. At the BMW Center for German and European Studies at Georgetown University, we love GMF's Out of Order podcast. We think you'll enjoy The Europe Desk, a new podcast which brings together leading experts working on the most pertinent issues facing Europe and transatlantic relations today. The podcast highlights the Center's work and events program, giving listeners access to the rich array of discussions and lectures hosted by the Center each semester. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, and this is Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast where we discuss how the world was, is, and will be ordered. So policymakers and think tankers have returned home now from Munich, where they spent the weekend at the Munich Security Conference, which is a major event in the transatlantic foreign policy calendar every year. This year, their topic was Westlessness. So we thought it would be the perfect opportunity to bring you a conversation I had recently with GMF's Thomas Klenabrokov on his new book, written in German, about why the world needs the West and his idea of robust liberalism. Thomas, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Rachel. Thomas is the author of a recent book, Die Welt braucht den Westen, which translates directly into The World Needs the West. Thomas, in, I think, the preface of the book, you say you're writing the book as a kind of response to a feeling of uh, despair, maybe, or hopelessness that you're seeing in the West and about the liberal order. Do you want to talk about that? Of course I can. I mean, the, the uh, I think we, we come out of an era of, let's call it, excessive optimism, a 30-year period post-1989, where things seem to be moving towards liberal democracy, seem to be moving towards a democratic peace. We just had to administer that wonderful period uh, and all would be well. It seems to me we're now reverting to an excessive pessimism as a response to the excessive optimism. We seem to see things getting worse by the day and nothing we can do about them. With things, I mean the liberal order, the ideas of freedom and like-mindedness, of multilateralism, of the idea that there is a win-win situation when people work together. That, of course, in my view, is only true if we let it happen. There is agency in this, and there is things to be done. The excessive pessimism, uh, in, in, in my view, results in the idea that the liberal order is, is already to be viewed in the rearview mirror, uh, that uh, the West is a thing of the past, that America is lost, that NATO is obsolete, dead, or brain dead. These are all the ideas that are part of this, um, what I call in German, immer schlimmerismus. It's an untranslatable term of It is, because I was thinking about it. It's really not translatable. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it actually means that things keep getting worse all the time, except that the term is funnier than the translation. Yeah, exactly. So there is a, there's, a, there's an assumption of linearity and continuity 
in in this that I'm uh, that I'm uh, I'm not buying into. So it's a sort of first there was a linear thinking of you know everything is great everything is going to get better with very little strategic agency and now we're just flipping it which is everything is going to get worse and we can have no agency. So you then suggest basically a specific form of how to have agency a modification let's say of liberalism which after a lot of back and forth we decided in English also to keep the term robust liberalism. What do you mean by robust liberalism and how does it correct certain errors in Porf's 1989 liberalism? This goes back to the idea that we misunderstood the year 1989 as the ultimate victory of liberalism, that there is no other legitimate form of governance than liberal uh, democratic governance. The key document to that type of thinking will be commemorated this year, its 30th anniversary, the Charter of Paris, by the way, the last international treaty that the Soviet Union signed before its demise, in which this thinking is codified. And the consequence of that thinking was that we thought everybody is going to want to be and become like us. Um, and that the planned economy, communist style, had failed, and, and therefore capitalism and liberal democracy would be the future for everybody, and Vietnam and Korea and, uh, and Cuba and certainly China and Russia would all come along to see the light. And if they didn't at some point in time. It was because they weren't ready for it and because it would take them more time. So our policy, our theory of change was that they would eventually come on board. And because they would, we would have to exercise patience, tolerance. We would just have to give one more compromise to even if they didn't follow the rules that they themselves had signed up to, um, because it would be a matter of time. Uh, that is especially true in the World Trade Organization, but also the, there's other examples. Okay, what do you mean by that with the World Trade Organization? I, I'm guessing you mean China. Well, the big elephant here is China. <laughs> uh, the big elephant is China. They signed up to something that they never, in 2001, that they never followed and they aren't following to the day. So they're the, the biggest participant of a global system and China is becoming the biggest stakeholder is a serial and intentional rule breaker and no system can survive that. But what I mean by misunderstanding 89, that leads to liberal overreach. The conceptual idea that liberalism will rule and run the world and it, there is an inevitability to it and there's very little you need to do because it's going to happen anyway. That leads to a belief that our systems need, don't need to be robust. We have excessive optimism, less robust system. We we see norm violation as only deferred norm acceptance and we can also uh, violate our own rules. There is an element of hypocrisy that we've gotten used to and there is is a lack of responsibility for maintenance of the system. And blame can be go around between Europe and the United States as who is more to blame on, on, on any of these, uh, of these charges. Uh, what I see there is sort of an expansive uh, liberalism uh, that consisted of, of two elements. On the conservative side of the spectrum, it's that the idea of human rights also make legitimate the idea of regime change, and that you can do that with military force, that you can bring democracy on the tip of bayonets and those being mostly American bayonets. 
on the left uh, side, there would always be one more thing to globalize, taken away from national sovereignty into supranational, whether that would be international law or the idea that there is a right for migration for everybody at all times. So that, to me, in combination, constitutes ideas of excessive and expansive uh, liberalism. And clearly, this type of overreach has to be corrected. This is the idea that I call a more temperate yet robust liberalism. It has to come in two versions. Both uh, belong together to correct an expansionary liberalism and replace it with an exemplary liberalism. Tempered and robust. So it's less expansive and therefore sort of more stable. It is less expansive, more exemplary. This goes back a couple hundred years, back to classical liberal thinking. Two ideas of liberalism. The one more expansive idea is to look for the summum bonum, the ultimate good, If there is a chance, let's strive for the best of alternatives. The more skeptical liberalism, the more constrained version of liberalism, is content to strive to prevent summum malum, to prevent the worst from happening, taking into account human nature. It has idealistic goals, but does see the constraints in pursuing them. And clearly, my idea of robust and temperate liberalism falls into the second of these camps. It also takes account of the fact that the idea of such an expansive liberalism of the last 30 years is also a product of American hegemony, the unilateral moment. That moment is over. And for the idea of a more temperate yet more robust liberalism, that actually may be not so bad. So I think you use the phrase a liberalism that promises less but delivers more. And this would have two parts to it. One is potentially reevaluating ideas of who's going to be in the club of liberal democracies. And this idea that, you know, it's a path that everyone's on and it's um, the certain path of all states. Um, we might, I think you're saying in the book, have to reconsider that and say there, there might be some part, um, some countries and states and group of states that want to be part of the club and some others might not, and we have to be more realistic. See, I mean, there, there's one illusion that there is actually no competitors and, and certainly no adversaries because everybody would be a partner on path to become a friend under the auspices of democratic uh, peace theory. That is unrealistic. As it turns out, other people have other ideas and they have other ideas of governance and they're fortifying that idea with hard power. As we see in the world today, there is no way around accepting that fact. That is a demand of realism. And then the second part is, so we have a smaller club and then the second part is this smaller club can probably do less than we used to think it could do. Maybe we can talk about the example of responsibility to protect. What's what's a more realistic, a tempered liberal version of what that means in a new world? Take, let's take intervention. We've had we've seen a series of inter, interventions. The international debate has been focusing on the concept of responsibility to protect. Because responsibility to protect actually means how do you prevent through preventative measures, but if those fail or through, through, through military intervention, uh, genocide. Uh, genocide and crimes against humanity. A well 
and defined set of crimes that, that this doctrine adopted by the General Assembly, yet not by uh, the uh, Security Council in 2005. That is an expanded version or an expanded way of thinking about military intervention because it is more than self-defense. I've been struggling with that because, of course, that is an expansionary idea. Yet, in my view, it falls under the idea of preventing the worst, the worst that mankind is able to do, another Auschwitz, another uh, Srebrenica, uh, another Rwanda. Yet, it seems to me that we have not yet found the appropriate way to put this into law and into practice. The only intervention that, with reference to the responsibility to protect, uh, is the Libya case, but the Libya ca case cannot call it an unmitigated success. One of the uh, key problems is that we would wish for a, a military intervention on grounds of responsibility to protect to be, let's say, aseptic, sort of in a clean room, no interest being involved here. Uh, only the global public good of a world that is free of genocide. But that, of course, is unrealistic. I've looked into all interventions since uh, in, in 1945 and looked in all that, were, that came with claims of humanitarian uh, intervention. And all but two had a member of the Security Council as being part to it. The only member of the Security Council that hasn't been part of any intervention is interestingly China. So we have to realize that for responsibility to protect, to succeed, you will have to have a messy alliance with national interests of all sorts. And we still haven't found a way to find a compromise between the pursuance of the global public good and the national interest. That is what is confusing people and it is what is confusing people in the Libya case. Does that mean you have to abandon the doctrine? I don't think so. Does it mean you have to in reinterpret it in a more constrained uh, uh, way? I think you have to. Given what you said before in terms of the new kind of liberalism we need, a more robust liberalism being both more limited in terms of group and in terms of scope, then I wonder if the title of your book shouldn't be The West Needs the West as opposed to the world needs the West. Because aren't we kind of arguing this day when the West was the leader of the world and everyone was going to become part of the West and the world was going to become Western is over. And in fact, it's the West that needs the West. I, you know, I would, uh, I would be a firm proponent of that. But does the world need the West? Yes and yes. <laughs> uh, because I, I think one is part of the other. I think I would agree with you, Rachel, that the West needs the West. And I think what you might refer to is the crisis of confidence within the West. Part of the crisis that we're living today is the crisis of trust in the within the West with regard to liberal democracy. You can see this in the populist revolt that, that uh, is affecting essentially all Western countries. And that comes from a series of crises that we have seen the financial crisis, we had a security crisis in, uh, in Crimea and uh, Ukraine, uh, we had a migration crisis, uh, we're in, a with it, in the midst of a trade crisis. So trade, intervention, migration, uh, guess what? That's the key 
set of topics that fuels populism. So all of those together have resulted in a crisis of trust into government. That is the anti-elitism that we see, no trust into those who govern us. So without a reform and a new balance that needs to be struck, without listening to to, to that critique, what of that critique can be translated into a new balance that you strike with with your own populations and a new trust to be rebuilt. That is what the West needs within the West. But I would also argue that the the world beyond the core uh, countries of uh, of the West needs that group of countries because they are the state embodiments of the ideas of freedom, of the transatlantic revolutions of uh, 1776 and 1789. I would argue the Polish Constitution of 1791 belongs to that as well. And essentially that is, in a very shorthand, those documents draw the political consequences uh, of the Enlightenment, of the principles of the Enlightenment. And, and that is what we strive to live by today. And that is what in parts of our, of our communities uh, is in crisis and need, needs to be rebuilt. But others are still looking towards that. These key ideas are not in question. They're still shining. They're shining to those who form a caravan to want to reach the United States or save their lives uh, to cross the Mediterranean to get to Europe. These people don't go to uh, neo-authoritarian rich regimes, uh, call them Bahrain or Saudi Arabia or Russia. They want to come to Europe and the United States, to Australia and a couple of other countries. They understand what the West is. They need that shining light. We need to provide that shining light to us and to them. Finally, you lived in the States for quite a while, and that tends to to sort of help one reflect on one's own country if you spend some time abroad. So where does Germany fit into this trajectory of liberalism that we saw since 1989, 1990? What kind of actor is it in this challenge that we're facing? 1989 was a wonderful year for Germany, not just because the wall fell and unification came about, but it was the first time since industrialization that Germany could feel to be on the right side of history. It was part of a larger group of countries that others would have the better resources and would have the leadership in that group. Others would have to change, not Germany would have to change. And it was probably a a good feeling to be part of that group, but wouldn't have to run up against anything, wouldn't have to invest so much because the, the goal was clear and the, inevitably, and the inevitability of it was also clear. So swimming with the tide instead of against the tide, uh, having to administer the inevitable was the political challenge of my uh, generation that we thought wasn't much of a challenge. That is why the turn of events that we see today is so hard for this country to cope with, uh, to be not just part of the West, but having to produce West, to having systemic responsibility rather than just be a member. I think that shift of conscience is the big hurdle that oftentimes people outside of Germany don't appreciate. They call on Germany to act and are disappointed when there is limited action. I think that's the, the, the intellectual background of that. 
The second point to make with regard to your question is the definition of the West. Part of the frustration in this country is with the Western institutions. There is a belief that if these Western institutions are fraying, failing, or becoming obsolete, uh, then the West is toast. Um, the Anglos saved up us. The Anglos are now leaving us. Uh, Brexit and Trump are seen as two indicators of the end of the West. You can only think that uh, if you have a certain definition of the West, that the West is the set of institutions that uh, were the post-war institutions, starting with the Atlantic Charter, 1941, the Marshall Plan, the Washington Treaty. But that's just the institutional West. The intellectual, the political West is the, is the Enlightenment West. To Germans, the West only started post-war because Germany was part, uh, led the charge against uh, liberal democracy until 1945. So it is understandable that Germans equate the West with the post-war institutions. To any Brit, any American, any Frenchman, the West existed before 1945, and they wouldn't have the idea that the West is toast just because some of the, uh, the institutions of today look weak. They would rather have the idea of like-mindedness beyond institutions, that even if those institutions fail, there is a, is a continuing like-mindedness that will find new institutions or reform the existing institutions. So the Germans don't have that confidence because they don't have that experience. Uh, that is a second point to take into consideration when appreciating the difficulty that Germany has with regard to adapting course. Do you think it's a generational thing? So sitting in Berlin observing things, do you think that the sort of upcoming, the young politicians, the young policymakers in Germany are going to have an easier time of this? Or is it too deep? Is it going to remain a really sort of fundamental cultural shift that German politics will have to make? So how optimistic should we be about change? I don't, I don't see a, a cultural shift at all. I see, uh, I mean, the, the ideas of freedom, does anybody question them? Uh, yes, maybe the fringes, but the fringes are and will remain, I'm optimistic, the fringes. Uh, is the idea of freedom looking for friends? It will remain to do that. So the, 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 those friends will not be different. Yes, there is a, will be a more realistic um, assessment of hard power in this, uh, in this country. The idea of complete powerlessness without protection uh, will become a, a, a real issue in this country. But I don't see a sort of an intellectual realignment. There are temptations to that end. If I were to give advice to Americans, I would think hard about whether it is in America's interest to have that question being asked and finding new alliances and friends in Europe's central power. America has always, since World War II, been able to be part of that debate and influence that debate. It has been a positive influence in that debate. It has turned to be a negative influence if the relations of the United States to this country contain of tariffs, uh, sanctions, and threats thereof, 
you should not wonder where the debate is headed. While I'm optimistic in the long run with regard to the generational change in, in this country, I would also ask some folks across the pond what Germany, the United States, would like to see and what the United States would like to invest into the outcome of that question. Thank you very much, Thomas, for joining me. Thank you, Rachel. The Out of Order podcast is produced by Zachary Taran and me, Sydney Simon. Rachel Tausenfreund is the editorial director. Sound design and editing are by Zachary Taran. That's a wrap.